The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Get healthy and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Remember when you read the words of Charles Dickens, these were the best of times and the worst of times? Oh my gosh, we're living in them. If you were to talk to a climate scientist, oh golly, That would probably be a really depressing conversation. And yet, there is hope. The report that came out two weeks ago from the UN, which is the last thing on earth from hopeful because it's talking about all sorts of terrible famines and other things that are in our future if we don't change, had the brightest light. And it's a bright light that you and I know can be kindled and expanded and actually happen. The report said that if by 2050 we're not eating any animal products, we can feed everybody on Earth with less land than we're using now. Now, for people who are really in love with meat from animals and cheese from animals and eggs from animals... This seems like kind of a far-off concept, but that's how you eat. That's how I eat. So maybe, yeah, maybe, if we really get on board and make it top priority to thrive as vegans and be sure that we get other people on board every single day, we might just save animals, ourselves, and this planet. Hi, I'm Victoria Moran, and I'm the host for the Main Street Vegan Program. I am so happy that you are with us today and encourage you to take a look at MainStreetVegan.net, where you'll see a wonderful blog this week by Eliza Stone that's about supporting vegan kids, and you'll also see information there about everything else that goes on at Main Street Vegan, including Main Street Vegan Academy, where you can come to New York City for a magical six days and emerge as a certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator. 
to really help get the word out and maybe have a successful business as well. Wherever you are on your vegan journey or your pre-vegan journey, it is my honor and pleasure to know that you are out there and to introduce you today to two amazing women. Both are medical doctors and they are going to talk about two very different sides of health. After the break, we'll be speaking with Dr. Saray Stansik, uh, who cured herself with a whole foods plant-based diet of long-standing debilitating multiple sclerosis and she is now practicing lifestyle medicine but in this first half of the program we're going to be speaking with a return guest that you all loved last time and you're going to love her more even now because she has a new book that is exquisitely beautiful poignant perfect it's a page turner you have to read it. If you like novels or memoirs, you have to read this exquisite nonfiction book, which is called Our Symphony with Animals. And its author, my guest, is Dr. Aisha Akhtar. She's a double board certified physician in both neurology and preventive medicine. She has a master's in public health, and she serves as the deputy director of the U.S. Army's TBI program, and she is a commander in the U.S. Public Health Service. Welcome, Dr. Akhtar. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for writing this book, because sometimes I get just a little bit jaded about books. It's like I read them, I write them, I live in books, I live in words. And every now and then, a book speaks to me in such a poignant way that I think books and civilization are the same thing. And that's what uh, our symphony with animals is doing for me right now. So first, tell us a little bit about yourself and what that has to do with your writing this incredible book. Sure. And first of all, um, just thank you so much for that beautiful comment. Um, I'm I'm really glad that the book speaks to you. Um, the I I was inspired to write the book in part based on my own um, personal story. So when I was a, a young girl, when I was five years old, um, an uncle started to sexually abuse me, and that continued for many years. And during that time, I remained very silent about what was occurring to me. I didn't tell anyone what he was doing to me. And then when I was nine years old, my uh, grandparents, who lived next door, adopted a dog, Sylvester. And Sylvester was the first animal I had ever known. And we just fell just instantly in love with each other. You know, Sylvester and I were everywhere. If you saw me, Sylvester was there and vice versa. Um, the unfortunate thing was is that I, came, I, I learned that Sylvester was also being physically abused by yet another uncle. I promise you this has a good ending. Um, and, you know, I, I, it was at that point, I think, when I started seeing Sylvester being abused that something happened in, in, in my mind. I started to see the connection between what was happening to Sylvester and what was happening to me in the sense that, I started realizing that it was the same mindset that causes all forms of violence. And I also saw what empathy for animals can do for us because ultimately what happened was I, I was so upset about Sylvester's abuse, even more upset about his abuse than my own, that I ultimately found the courage to speak up and end Sylvester's abuse. 
And that led me to have the courage to speak up and end my own abuse. So it was a, you know, I look back and I, I see how my empathy for an animal had a profound and marvelous effect on my life, one that really changed my life for the better. And today I'm a neurologist and I'm wondering, you know, how does that empathy, where does that empathy for animals come from and how does it affect all of us? How does it affect our well-being as individuals and collectively as a society? So I spent five years traveling around the country, gathering stories from a host of characters and looking at the medicine and looking at the science to really, to get, to really ask what do we gain when we embrace empathy for animals and what do we lose when we don't? And you've done such an amazing job of it. So what do we lose? Well, oh gosh, what we lose is, uh, well, we do, the studies are starting to show, um, and there a lot of studies actually showing that when we don't, when we lose that empathy for animals, when we suppress empathy for animals, and when we allow violence to occur against animals, that has very real repercussions for us as well. That violence towards animals um, is very much linked with other forms of violence towards humans, especially in the cases of domestic violence and child abuse. Um, we also, there are also some studies that there are suggesting that even when we as a society, even if we are not directly involved with violence towards animals, for example, when we as a society allow industry and government to hurt animals in laboratories and in factory farming and other places, that that violence may actually spill over into the larger society. It's what's called spillover violence, that acceptance of even these routine, mechanized, industrialized, normalized, in a sense, violence has repercussions for us as a society, and it, it does seep in and um, causes many ramifications, not just in how, uh, violence towards other humans, but also in um, the fact that many people can um, experience an almost a trauma related to even just knowing about the uh, violence uh, happening to other animals. There's what we call a secondary vicarious trauma. Basically, what we're learning is that the lives of humans and animals are not separate. Our, our well-being is not separate from that of animals, but our well-being is very much entwined with that of animals. Um, how we feel about animals has, and how we behave towards animals has a very real effect on how we are with each other and how we are as society as well. So as a neurologist, can you shed any light on the disconnect? I think everybody that works with animals sees that no one consciously wants to hurt an animal. We try to get them to look at a documentary about what goes on, and they say, oh, no, no, I can't look, but I can go through the drive-through and, and eat one. What's going on there? Yeah, it's, it's, it's odd, isn't it, how we can so disconnect. So um, w one of the things I looked at was not only how we're able to experience empathy, but how do we suppress empathy? One remarkable way in how we suppress empathy for animals is that we really change our language. Basically, how we think about animals is a creation of language. So um, you know, many of us people love their dogs and cats, for example, but they may not think twice about the chickens they're munching on, um, or the cows who are brutalized in factory farms, or they may not think twice about the dogs and cats in laboratories, for example. So, but, so the way we disconnect 
from what's happening to these other animals is by changing our language. So what we do, for example, is we divide animals into groups. So we have companion animals. And those are the animals that it's okay for society to care about. Then we have food animals. And just putting that label, food animals, immediately causes a disconnect that decreases our empathy for those animals. Or identifying animals as lab animals immediately does the same thing. It suppresses our empathy. And we, we go even further than just separating, dividing animals into different categories. Um, we will slice and dice animals into their parts. So food animals are not just chickens and pigs, but now they're, they're wings, their thighs, their nuggets, their ribs. Or we rename animals altogether. So animals in laboratories aren't really referred to as animals. They're now um, referred to as, um, as tools, systems, preparations, and models. So we've changed our language to really change how we feel about these animals and in order to ease our conscience about what, is, what industry and government is doing to these animals. Fascinating. So how about the people and, and the stories? I know you talk in the book about some very unlikely people whose lives were changed by an association with an animal. Can you tell us about one of these? Um, yeah, so there, there are a lot of people. So one one that really I found was really just really sweet was the story of James Giuliani. And James was a mobster for the Gambino family. He lives in Brooklyn. And he lived a really petty, selfish, violent life. And James grew up never being around animals. He had no interest in animals, saw, saw, saw them as nuisances, as dirty, smelly creatures. And basically what happened, so James had no outward kindness towards animals, but he had it in, inside. It was deep within. That empathy was there deep within. And what happened was one time he came across an abused dog. And the anger that, that he felt at the idea of someone abusing an animal, even though he didn't necessarily feel anything, any necessary kindness towards the dog, but he felt incredible anger that someone would do something to someone so vulnerable, someone could be so cruel to someone so vulnerable. That really awakened an empathy. It's called empathetic anger. And that really awakened that nascent empathy that was waiting inside of, of, of James. And um, the story is just absolutely beautiful, what happened after that and how James just absolutely fell in love with this dog and tried to save this dog. And um, the dog has such a profound effect on James that he changed his life around completely. He, he was a drug and alcohol addict at the time. After he met this dog, he stopped all alcohol and drug, drug use. He's been alcohol and drug-free since. He also now devotes his life to rescuing animals, and he goes around the country teaching others, especially children, kindness towards animals. This is how basically Jane's story shows that even someone who you might think may not really care about animals or have that empathy can have that empathy for animals and sometimes it just takes certain circumstances to awaken that empathy it's a really wonderful beautiful story and i love how customized it is that you would think of a guy in the mob would be awakened by anger <laughs> not by yeah. you know some yeah. of these, these uh, cuddlier kinds of emotions but i, I do want to <laughs> ask you uh, about 
people who do care about animals, you are very honest in this book of, of uh, sharing uh, some of the incidents of, of your childhood trauma. A high percentage of people that I meet who are animal activists went through some sort of childhood trauma or, or other very harrowing experiences that some other people thankfully managed to avoid in this life. How are we going to change the world for animals if it seems that only people who have been damaged in some way seem to come to it naturally? Yeah, that's a a great question. And by no means should it be ever be thought of that um, animal um, animal protection is something for is like a, a hobby for those who face trauma in their lives or or a way for people to recuperate from the own trauma in their own lives it should never exactly. be seen as that yeah um and um i think that what happens with with many people is that when they face hardships when they face trauma i think something happens that they're they're more likely to open up and um and see that connection between what happened to them and their abuse and to understand what's happening to animals, the abuse of animals. And so I just think it makes us more aware. For people who face trauma, it does make us a little bit more aware of trauma that can happen to anyone, including pigs and chickens and cows and mice, and to to recognize that cruelty is cruelty. Um, But as far as um, changing that, Changing that, I guess. What I it, I think that these are just maybe the tip of the iceberg. That what these folks are some of the people who uh, end up in the animal protection movement, but they are not by any means the majority. I don't think so, uh, I, because we're seeing so many remarkable changes happening in the world and in how people are starting to recognize that we need to be kinder to, towards animals, that we need to start recognizing our, how our behaviors affect the lives of animals. And, you know, this, this, is, this is happening throughout um, many different populations and not just those who are traumatized. So I don't see it as something that is um, predominantly an issue among those who've been traumatized themselves. I just feel that those who have been traumatized may be more likely to perhaps earlier on get that connection. Does that, mm. I hope that makes sense. It does. It, it's, it does quite beautifully. So when I look at our symphony with animals, it, it's, it's almost a health book because you're talking about how important it is for us to be human, for us to have a positive relationship with animals. So I look at you as a medical doctor other medical doctors that come on this program talk about health and diet and that kind of thing. So tell us about the health side of animal ethics and animal relationships. Yeah, it's it's a good thing. And I what I what I'm not trying to do is telling people I'm not writing prescriptions saying people need to go and get a dog or a cat to improve their health because that's not a reason why you want to get a dog or a cat you you want to if you want to adopt an animal adopt an animal because you're you want to give a good home to an animal and um, you can devote um, your you, you know you're willing to commit to that animal throughout his or her lifetime um, but we do see that there are some benefits 
to humans when we do have those animal companions in our lives, and we we are seeing um, um, benefits in our in our in in the fact that our lifespans can be increased. Animals can help um, reduce our blood pressure, reduce our cholesterol level, reduce our cardiovascular baseline rate. In other words, animals help to kind of relieve uh, a lot of that human-generated pressure in our lives in ways that we can actually physiologically measure. In addition, being with animals can boost the release of positive neurochemicals like dopamine and oxytocin. These are neurochemicals that help us feel good. Um, so we're, we're seeing that not only in the people but also among the animals. So there's a mutual benefit when you're in a good, loving relationship with animals. So yes, we do see um, some evidences emerging that suggest that Physically being with animals, in good relationships with animals, can have beneficial health effects for us. I also wanted to, the book wasn't limited to that, of course. It was to look at the larger issue of the ethics of how we want to be with animals because I wanted to look at at the health of us as as a whole, the health of us as a species, the health of us as a society. What What is a healthy society? And to me, a large part of what makes a health, healthy society is how how kind are we to those who are most vulnerable and how empathetic are we because empathy ultimately is at the core of a healthy society. It's at the core of healthy relationships. And empathy has a direct direct effect on our own individual health. And so I, I wanted to, to look not only at the individual health issues, but also to look at the broader issues of why it's so important, not just for the animal's sake, but not that that's, there's anything wrong with that, but it's also important for our sake to think about how we want to be with animals and to develop a kinder way, a more um, a mutually beneficial way of being with animals in, in a way that does not exploit and hurt animals. And one additional way that you're doing this, uh, in addition to that your life is lived in this way, is that all profits from the sale of our symphony with animals will be devoted to animal charities and nonprofits. So thank you for that. And I'm sure the animals thank you. So, you know, we talk about books after they're written. And we kind of glow in the aftermath of here's this beautiful book and, you know, here's this work that, that, that comes from someone's soul and now it's out in the world. But it's hard to write a book. So tell us one of the more difficult aspects of, of working on this one. Yeah, you're right. It was hard to write a book. Um, the hardest thing was actually was figuring out what the book was going to be. Um, I wrote an academic book about the uh, intersection between uh, public health and animal welfare, animal protection, and that was very academically oriented. And after I wrote the book, I told myself I was never going to write another book again. But then I found myself wanting to write another book, one that would be more um, accessible to the general public. And the hardest thing, honestly, was figuring out what the book was going to be. It was I, I had so many ideas that just absolutely sucked. <laughs> they were horrible ideas in retrospect. And I, I couldn't think of how to, to to make this book. So what I ultimately did was I just decided um, I was just going to go out and start seeing what's out there. I'm just going to start gathering stories, start gathering the information, 
and see what comes. And that actually, once I did that, I, I really freed myself up. Um, I didn't constrain myself so much about having a, the idea from the beginning. And that led to what the book was going to be. It became obvious what the book was going to be after I started gathering these stories. Um, and so, and, and that was actually the fun part was going out and meeting these individuals and getting their stories. I, I really enjoyed that part of it. Well, we live on stories. <laughs> We're storytelling species, so I'm sure that was a wonderful experience for you, and it's a wonderful experience for us as, as readers. And when I say readers, I also want to really encourage listeners. I know you're listening to this podcast, so you have a certain auditory sense. This book is also available on Audible, and I have it that way as well. It's beautiful, and the woman who reads it has a real sense of, of the words and, and the meaning. So uh, if you're somebody who likes to listen, that's another way that um, you could read this beautiful book. So we talked about what was hard about it, what was really fun and amazing and one of your favorite experiences. Um, my, my, probably my favorite experience was uh, meeting uh, David Lee. And he was a social worker. He, he, and, and I, I know we don't have really a lot of time to go into this, but he basically created the first successful animal therapy program at a prison in the U.S., and it was at the Ohio State Penitentiary for the Criminally Insane. And the story is remarkable because not only was this the second largest poured concrete structure in the world, it was also one of the most notorious penal institutions in the country because of its brutal treatment of the inmates. And the change that occurred because of David and what happened, he brought in, he started bringing in some animals to see if that wouldn't change the, the lives of the inmates, brighten the lives of the inmates. And the effect was just absolutely remarkable, how these inmates bonded with these animals and how um, many, in, in many cases the animals actually taught the inmates to be kinder, to be less violent, to have more empathy. It's quite a story. And David was such a, a wonderful, charming person to meet. Um, he was probably my favorite favorite character in the book. I love how you talk about the book almost like it's fiction with favorite characters, and it reads that way. That, that's what makes it so fascinating. So just in, in our last 30 seconds, what would you say to somebody just walking down the street who maybe has a dog or a cat but doesn't really think about animals What's going to blow this person away? I would say that um, if you've ever ever wondered why, why you know, if you're if you're on the fence, if you love your dogs and cats and never really thought about the other animals in the world, this book, honestly, and and I know this is going to sound like a hard sell, but this is the book to convince you why you will and should care about other animals. It's a, it's a gentle story, a gentle ride to um, show people how the other animals are not so different and how their lives are very much entwined with ours. Oh, and bless you. And it comes from a gentle author. <laughs> so sorry to cut you <laughs> yes. off. Read our symphony with animals and we'll be back after this. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. 
the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back to the Main Street Vegan program. And guess what? We have a change. Flexibility is something wonderful to develop. We did have some technical issues so that we're not going to be speaking with Dr. Saray Stansik of the documentary Code Blue. We will be having her on again very soon. Watch for that. But we've actually um, had someone step in who is absolutely wonderful and who is, in fact, executive producer of four documentaries, The Human Experiment, Cowspiracy, What the Health, and A Prayer for Compassion. And that is none other than Dr. Silas Rao, founder and director of the nonprofit Climate Healers. He's a system specialist with a PhD in electrical engineering from Stanford, and he worked on the internet communications infrastructure for 20 years after graduation. Dr. Rao has promised his granddaughter Kamaya that the world will be largely vegan before she turns 16 in 2026. Welcome, Dr. Rao. Thank you for having me, Victoria. That's beautiful. It's (laughs) wonderful to have you, and it is so timely. I have to tell you that as much as I thought I knew, when I read that UN report that came out a couple of weeks ago, it rocked my world. I think because of the talk of widespread famine, it made it seem so real and so critical. What's your take on all of that? Yeah, I think the UN report is also very conservative. It's, uh, it's actually, I think it is going to be worse than what they're saying. And if we continue doing what we are doing, see, there are, there are two ifs there, right? If we have, so we have to continue doing what we are doing for it to be that bad. So, but simultaneously, people are changing. You see the rate at which uh, people are going vegan. Uh, it's incredible. You know, you see Burger King now having a vegan option. Uh, Wendy's is talking about a vegan option. These large companies are not putting a vegan option because um, they are trying to promote veganism. They are putting a vegan option on the menu because without that, they are going to go bankrupt. That's how fast people are demanding these things. Uh, you know, there was a report in Forbes last year saying that between 2014 and 2017, in three years, the number of vegans in the U.S. increased by by 600%. That's a factor of seven. That's amazing. That is so hopeful. Right. It's a factor of seven in three years. If we keep that rate of increase going, then it will be a factor of seven between 2017 and 2020. It will be a factor of 49 between 2017 and 2023. And it will be a factor of 343 between 2017 and 2026, which is when I promised my granddaughter that it will be a largely vegan world. A factor of 343, which means that even if, even if one-third or one-percent of the people were vegan in 2017, a hundred percent of the people will be vegan by 2026, if we keep that rate of growth going, right? So, so what can... What do we do to keep that rate of growth going? This is exciting stuff and positive, hopeful, wonderful stuff in in the face of so much that could be extremely negative. Right. You know, I mean, we have to uh, tell the story. We have to tell the story of 
of our transformation. We have to tell the story, a positive story about what we have done so far. So because we always tell a negative story that we have destroyed the planet, we have done this and we have done that. And we have done a lot of those things, but um, simultaneously we have done something good, right? We have actually prevented the earth from going back to another ice age, which is something good that we did. No other species could have done this and we have done that. And so in the, while doing that, we have created a huge mess. So now we have to clean up the mess and then transform the way we live. So this to me is, you know, I use the analogy of uh, Michelangelo, you know, when he sculpted David. Imagine if everyone was focused on the shards of marble that was lying on the floor because he was using a hammer and chisel to sculpt David from a large marble block. And if you came and, you know, if you started yelling at Michelangelo, why, you know, look at the mess you made. When you do that, you're going to miss David, right? And secondly, you cannot tell Michelangelo to clean up the mess using a hammer and chisel. So that's what he used for sculpting David. So you, you have to give him a bucket and a shovel to clean up the mess. So the same thing, you know, we cannot use the systems we, that we use to heat up the planet to start cooling the planet. It has to be a completely different way of organizing ourselves. So we need different tools, right? And so to get this momentum, keep this momentum going, we have to build those tools, those new tools that we need so that we can organize ourselves for cleaning up the planet, for regenerating forests, and that's what should be rewarded in the new system, right? As opposed yes. to what we're rewarding today. I was very hopeful in that UN study that they did talk about how well things could go by 2050 if we were entirely vegan. Right. And yet I was in an airport today and saw a guy wearing a shirt that said beer, bacon and guns and underneath it said freedom. So right. I think a lot of people believe that without the bacon, they're losing their freedom. How do we reach them? Well, we don't have to reach them right now. People change their minds as time progresses. So we only have to reach the people who are ready to change right now. And that's true at any given time. We have to reach the people who are ready to change. And there is a whole, there are a whole lot of people who are ready to change at any given point in time. So we have to reach them and help them change and so on, right? Keep going. Then the person who's wearing the beer, um, you know, bacon and guns, he'll be wearing something else 10 years down the road. You know what I mean? So it could be different. Yeah, I, I think I do. So you have always, or for as long as I've known you, held a very positive view that the world really can become vegan or virtually vegan, that we really can turn around climate change. And I think that among your peers, among scientists, you're probably in the minority. How do you keep the faith? <laughs> You know, if we, if I never start a project saying that I'm going to fail in that project. You know what I mean? If you start with that belief, you will never work on that project properly, right? So you, so you, well, but first that, that belief has to be based on facts. So I just gave you facts as to why I believe a vegan world could happen. So now, you know, now that I know it can happen, I have to work on making it happen, right? So, and without that belief, you will not work on it. This is why uh, we have to believe that a vegan world would happen by 2026 if we are going to work on it you know, sincerely. The same way that people who worked on the moon landing in 1969 
1962, when they started work, they had to believe it could be done. Otherwise, they would have been useless on that project, right? right. So I look at uh, the um, civilization. Civilization is an engineering project. It really is an, it's really is an engineering project. Um, so it's like, you know, you're mapping out who does what and how food gets on the table, how trains go, you know, it's like a large engineering project, right? And an engineering project that's based on marketing and lies always fails. And that is the kind of civilization we have today because it's based on marketing and lies. There's so many lies and so much marketing going on. We are not telling the truth about things. And so it's going all right. So now we say, well, if we have to build a sustainable civilization, it has to be based on the truth. And Cannot what lie about things, right? Right. What does the truth entail besides stopping eating animals? Well, it's the truth about uh, measuring our, our impact accurately. Me the truth about the cost of things. So it has to be based on science and the truth. So meaning, you know, if we say, uh, if we say the cost of something is um, five units, then you should be able to measure the accumulation of these costs and see that we are still within our limits on what we can do on the earth. So the cost has to be based on something real. It has to be based on an ecological footprint or something like that, which is real. So that we can measure, you know, we can look at it from satellite and see that we're only using half the earth as humanity and the other half has been given back to wildlife, right? So if we have a way to close that loop and make sure that what we are measuring in our costs um, is um, validated by what is really happening on earth, then you have a civilization that's based on science and the truth. So you mentioned wildlife and you have a, a slide that I've seen in some of your presentations and it's also uh, in the film A Prayer for Compassion where you talk about biomass and the relative weight of wildlife humans and humans enslaved animals. It's an amazing statistic. Can you explain that? Yeah, so um, there was a paper in the uh, National Academy of Sciences um, uh, written, I think, in 2009 by Anthony Barnowski, where he estimated, he's a, a paleobiologist, so he estimated the weight of all the megafauna, all the wild animals that lived on Earth for the last 200,000 years. So he had all these dots you could see, and they were fairly constant for 200,000 years, until about 10,000 years ago, okay? Until about 10. So it was about 200 million metric tons. That's the total weight of all the wild animals that lived about 10,000 years ago. And then he shows that how it sort of went down because humans started killing them. And by 1970, we had killed about 60% of those wild animals in terms of total weight. So now they're down to 80 million metric tons, okay? And by 1970, our weight, the weight of human beings alone, was equal to the weight of all the wild animals that lived 10,000 years ago. So we, one species, we were now 200 million metric tons. And uh, the animals that we raised for food were roughly double our weight, and they were eating roughly three times as much food as we eat. So as far as the Earth is concerned, they're presenting three times the weight, you know, uh, as we do. So then between 1970 and 2010, wild animals decreased by 
Okay, so they're 52% down from 1970 levels, which is already 60% down from 10,000 years ago, which means they're down like 81% from 10,000 years ago. Right, so they were just disappearing. And our weight doubled. Okay, we will now double the weight of all the wild animals that lived 10,000 years ago. And the animals that we raised, that we raised for food and clothing, you know, our enslaved animals, we're eating almost five times as much food as we eat. So they're presenting a profile that's 10 times the weight of all the wild animals that lived 10,000 years ago. And how does this relate to the climate and the environment? Because to feed all those animals, you're using up so much land. Uh, we are using almost 45% of the land area of the planet, right? Just to feed the, the, our enslaved animals. And, uh, and then those animals give us, you know, uh, they eat like 7.3 billion tons of food every year, and they give us something like 0 0.19, so about 190 million tons of food. So it's just like a 40 to 1 reduction that happens between what they eat and what they provide us food, right? And then, uh, so we are, you know, most of our, the food we eat is already plant-based. We eat about 83% of the food that we eat is already plant-based. Only 17% is animal-based. Um, so, but for that 17%, we are taking five times as much food as we eat and giving it to the animals. Wow. I've right. never heard it described quite that way. Yeah, it's, it's mind-boggling when you think about it. But, you know, it's not about just the food. Because in addition to providing us with 190 million tons of food, they're also providing us with 140 million tons of other substances, which is, you know, like skin and bones and God knows what else we do. I mean, it's just disgusting what we do with animals. You know, we take their blood and they, so we use all these body parts for other things like cosmetics, for shoes, for clothing, things like that. So if we only change our diet, you do not address that. And therefore, the number of animals that we raise will remain the same. So if you only change the diet but not change our clothing, we're not doing much. But when we change everything, when we go vegan, and we say we don't want to use animals for any purpose whatsoever, then you make an impact. I can see it happening. Now, when you talk about wildlife, this also brings up extinction which is something that I know you also talk a lot and that we're in a period of extinction. And I know some people say, well, that's just normal. Those phases happen. Can you explain that to the non-scientists among us? Yeah, so when you have uh, taken a, a biomass of wild animals and reduced it by 80% and it's now gone, you know, that was 2010, by now it's like 86% or something like that. Uh, even if you know you haven't extincted a species, they are functionally functionally already going towards extinction because they're they're smaller and smaller in number, so it's hard for them to reproduce and you know and thrive, right? So yes, uh, you know not many species have gone extinct completely. Meaning extinction meaning you can keep one member of that species alive for 70 years and pretend it's not extinct for 70 years, but that's not. But that's only just pretending, right? That's not real. So if only one member of the species is alive, it's going, that species is going to die. We know that. So there are a lot of species that are already functionally extinct, even though we haven't listed them as extinct. 
So this is the problem we face. You know, we don't have a thriving ecosystem when you keep killing animals. You cannot have a thriving ecosystem like that. So we are, we are, and animals have no place to hide from us. So we are going and catching them with uh, helicopter gunships and killing them. We are catching them in the ocean. We are using, for, you know, satellite technology to find the last remaining fish, and we are killing them. So this frenzy killing is happening because every corporation wants to keep growing their revenue. So a, a corporation that's selling fishes wants to keep selling more fishes every year. So they are going to catch them. And, and our, as stockholders, we are telling the corporations that's really what we want from here. So it's something that we have built into our system. So it's like a tool, right? So the, the way we are organizing ourselves, uh, the game we are playing with our money is causing this extinction to happen. It's causing climate change to happen. It's causing all of our problems. So we have to change that game. So right. that sounds like an entire, I think about the lovely phrase about addiction from Carl Jung, where he said that, that to really overcome an addiction, someone has to undergo a complete psychic displacement and rearrangement, something akin to a spiritual experience. It sounds that's like what you're asking for. No, actually, I'm, I'm saying that we can design a tool, a new tool, right, a new game, where if you just come and join that game and play that game, you automatically start thinking differently. So what's the new game? Lay it out for us. So I call this game Aquarius. Okay, so it's like, uh, it's a game in which you get a mindset of abundance as soon as you start playing the game. You feel like there are lots of things being given to you, right? And uh, it, so basically, you know, in, in the current game, in the game we are playing today with money, it's a game of scarcity. Because if you don't do anything, you will get zero money, right? And, and you're going to starve to death. So, so that's uh, the basic uh, uh, contract we have in society. If you don't do anything, you're going to starve to death. So you have to work, right? You have to work. And if you cannot find work, you're going to starve to death. Uh, so the way we have created the game for money Money is only created in the form of loans. So every time you, you create money in the form of a loan, there is a lender and a borrower. And the lender is telling the borrower, you better give me back that money with the interest. Otherwise, I'm going to take away everything you own, your collateral, right? So there is this, there is this domination. There's already a domination paradigm built in. Okay? So a fundamental act of creating money in the game itself, we have, we have added domination. And then um, the, we don't issue money or currency for the, for the interest, so which means you have, the person who borrowed the money has to go get it from somebody who already, who's already borrowed the money. So it, it creates competition among us. So we're constantly competing with each other and constantly trying to dominate one over the other. Right? That's the game we have created. And then in that game, we are saying to people, if you want money, you have to either beg for money or you have to borrow from, from someone else, or you have to work in a slave job you know, for someone who has money, right? or you have to get in, interest from someone. So you have to accumulate enough money so that you can get, give that out and, and get interest. So the game itself causes all the problems that we face today. So I'm saying, okay, here is a new game. 
where you know as soon as you open your account, you open your uh, your app and you look at it, you will see money pouring into your account. So you get this feeling of abundance, right? And but it pours into the heart of the account, and then from the heart, you, you get one sixth of it, or some portion of it is automatically coming into your pocket, which you can use. So that's your minimum basic income. Okay, that's built into this new game. And then there is another pipe that goes into the community chest. So what you're saying is in the new game, all money is, comes through individuals. Okay, And then every time you do an act of compassion through a certified compassionate organization, the flow into your pocket increases. So you will get more money into your pocket. So it basically rewards those who do acts of compassion. It rewards those who clean up the ocean, who clean up the land, who, who are doing things for the good of others, right? So now to earn more money, what do you have to do? You have to serve others. You have to serve other people, or you have to go plant trees, so you have to serve the earth, or you have to go and serve animals. Uh, or, or fourth, you can go and you know, create new ideas, create art and things like that, which you will reward. So, but if you don't do that, if you just sit around and do nothing, then the, the money that comes into your heart then goes into the community chest. So you're basically, essentially, you're paying more tax than the person who's not, you know, who's actually doing the compassionate work. So you create this new game in which you automatically make people feel that they're treated fairly and that they, uh, that they have a sense of abundance, mindset of abundance and where you encourage acts of compassion as opposed to acts of consumption. And, um, and it basically you know, has, is built on a vegan economy. So it's all vegan. Everything is vegan in this, right? So it promotes this nonviolent way of living. It sounds like a fairy tale, uh-huh. but you're a scientist and not a weaver of tales. So I'm feeling that we are supposed to get very serious about this. Absolutely. We are getting serious about this. We are building the app. And then uh, we're going to be discussing all the parameters during our conference in uh, Mesa, Arizona in October. So October tell, 25th tell us. through. Yeah, October 25th through 27th in Mesa, Arizona. So if you go to veganworld2026.org, um, you will see a banner for the conference. So uh, veganworld2026.org slash conference. You'll get to the conference page and you can register and attend. And basically, we are going to work on the details of this Aquarius game. And, be, and what we are saying is that people who join the game have to put some money to join the game. So it's a one-time fee. Like a hundred, we are saying maybe $100 should be enough, you know, $101. And, and then uh, you have to play the game. So in the game, when you buy a product, you have to sort of scan the um, barcode of the product, and it'll tell you how much ecological footprint went into the, making that product, and it'll deduct it from your wallet. Okay, so it's like a, you're doing an accounting of your ecological footprint with this new game, and you're checking to see that you you can live within your means. And if you need to increase your means, you have to go do some acts of compassion. So basically what we are saying is, please play the game seriously, but it's still an honor code. It's not real at the moment, right? And then the money that we collect, we will then uh, use it to, um, to fund uh, animal sanctuaries and places like that who are helping us with the game, right? Who are helping us by 
uh, allowing people to come into acts of compassion in their sanctuary. So they will be funded by this. So it becomes like a Ponzi scheme. As more and more people join, more and more money gets funded to uh, funnel to these um, these animal sanctuaries, animal welfare organizations, or uh, other compassionate organizations, certified compassionate organizations, and it grows the compassion movement. I love the idea of growing the compassionate movement. I have a hard time with seeing that by 2026, we're not only going to have a vegan world, but there's going to be a whole change of how we function economically. And what I see looking out now, you already mentioned the impossible Whopper. <laughs> and, right. you know, the, the Beyond Meat IPO was such a big deal back in May. So it seems like the system that we have now is, is doing quite a bit towards bringing right. about a more vegan world. What do we do with that? No, no, it, it is it is great that it's happening. But as it as it uh, as the vegan um, economy grows within the current economy, you will see more and more turbulence, because the current economy depends on growth, actual growth in material use, whereas vegans uh, vegan products require a reduction in material use, right? Because you're not using the animals, you don't have to feed the animals and then take it from them. Wow. You're taking it directly from the earth. So you're, you're basically causing a reduction in the resource use, right? So, I, this is I why, so this is why in the current system, the governments are going around subsidizing the meat and dairy industry, right? Because they still want to keep the growth, the yes. growth in resources going. So they're, even though we are not buying the products, our government is buying all those products and storing them in warehouses and then dumping them. Oh boy, you know, I'm, I hate to stop you on dumping them, but we do have to stop. We're gonna have a hard stop from the radio people. Veganworld2026.org slash conference. Check it out, check out climatehealers.org and all of Dr. Rao's movies. You can check this out at our show notes at mainstreetvegan.net. Thank you so much, Dr. Silas Rao. Thank you for your vision and thank you for what we are all gonna do to fix this thing. God bless, be happy, be blessed, be well and be vegan. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.